We're still in this tug of war conversation between uh, a biblical worldview and culture. And I told you a couple weeks ago, this is not new. Um, when Jesus walked the earth, there was a tug of war. Sometimes it was between Jesus and religious people. Sometimes it was between Jesus and, and skeptics. Sometimes it was between Jesus and the people that were following him. Where, where God's will for our life and God's purpose for our life and God's best for our life is always bumping up against to what, to what the culture uh, thinks and deems is correct. So we're going to lean into this again today and we're going to be in this conversation for a while because I think it's important for us as believers. Listen, I'm not naive to think that everybody that walks in here or watches online or is at one of our other campuses agrees with everything I say. It would be really nice. But I'm not naive about that. But here's what I implore you to do. Go back to the Bible. Just go back to scripture. And if you find out I said something wrong, come back to me. We'll argue about it. Over lunch, I'll buy. And 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 we'll this, but this is what we do. When Paul was teaching people starting new churches, it says he got to a group of people called the Bereans, and when he left, they went back and checked on what he said. And and he says they were a more noble character because they didn't just take his word at face value, they went back and checked. So I encourage you, week after week after week, go back to the Bible and check it. So I also want to make sure we understand this, and I'm going to say this every time, because we are in a divided country, in a divided time, where it's easy to get on one side or the other and hate people. Can I get an amen? So we're not talking about these topics in order for us to to get on one side and point fingers on another side. We're talking about these topics because it literally brings freedom into our lives. And, and we don't need to condemn people to hell. Jesus said he came to set captives free. And so it's almost like there's, there's moments in history where the church has all the keys to freedom and we walk around with them in our pocket. And we, we join this side or that side and, and we just, you know, throwing stones at everybody. And Jesus is going, hey, listen, there's a key that will unlock that door and give people freedom. And so that's my heart. We're going to deal with some difficult stuff this morning. That is my heart. That the church is a place where people can experience freedom in Christ. Amen. And so uh, so we're going to lean into that today. We're going to read from Romans. Romans chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. And today we're going to talk, we're going to start a two-week conversation about our identity, where we find our identity, what it means for us, what we label ourselves, and the tug of war between finding our identity on a horizontal plane or on a vertical plane. So we're going to talk about that. Why don't you stand to your feet one more time? We're going to read from Romans chapter 8. We do this just to honor the word of God. And so Romans chapter eight, starting in verse one, say amen if you're ready. This is therefore, there is therefore, I'm gonna start over. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at your neighbor and say, I thank God for that. 
You are not. If you're in Christ Jesus, if you've, if you've asked him to forgive you of your sins and the Holy Spirit has come in you and dwelt in you and you are saved and set free, guess what? There is no condemnation. We read last week that there is no one that can bring up something about you now that God doesn't already know. There's no snitches. God already knows. So now you can say, go ahead and tell him. You ain't going to get anywhere. He already forgave me of that. Amen. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if in Christ, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him father we thank you for your word today we pray that we get the connection right lord as as hard as the culture tries to pull us in this horizontal alignment. We pray that your spirit would align us with you. We pray that our eyes would be lifted up vertically to where our help comes from. Lord, that that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you today, Lord, that their identity would change. They'd become adopted as sons and daughters of God. Thank you for this moment. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, amen. You may be seated. The apostle Paul is addressing the believers in Rome to teach them that the law of God was necessary to reveal sin in their lives, but it was incapable of saving. So you go all the way back to when God was interacting with the Israelites, bringing them out of Egypt, he, he gave Moses what we call the law. These are, these are the things that you don't do. 
And what we found since then was actually all the way back to Adam, because there was a law with Adam. It was don't eat of the, the certain tree, right? You're thinking, how hard was that? He only had one thing not to do, not 10. And we know that Adam and Eve could not keep that rule and sinned against God and it separated them. And then that separation has continued. There has been no one who has ever walked the face of the earth who has lived a perfect enough life with the exception of Jesus himself, who, by the way, was fully God. That's how he pulled it off. God came to us, lived the perfect example, and then died for your and I sin. So as perfect as you think the person sitting beside you is, I know somebody's dating in here and they're like, yeah, you're perfect. (laughs) Not even close. They're going to sin before the day gets over. So Paul is telling the Romans, listen, the law of God was necessary to reveal that sin, but it was incapable of saving us. He says the law wasn't sin, but the, but the presence of the law revealed that we were sinful. So he, he kind of says it like this. There were rules in place. Now the rules are not, are not sin. Everybody following me. But because we have sin in us, we disobeyed the rules. Now, now are you following me? So now the law, the primary objective of the law was not to save us, but to reveal that we needed saved. And so you remember when you were growing up as a kid and you broke the rules and then you were looking for somebody to bail you out. You remember that? So Paul is telling them, look, the law was there to reveal what it couldn't fix. And then God already had a plan to bring Jesus to fix what the law revealed. The law revealed that that inability and pointed to Christ as our savior. Chapter eight, Paul teaches that once we have been forgiven of our sins through Christ and accepted by God, there ceases to remain any condemnation for we are now living according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. So now once we are saved, the orientation changes. So before we came to Christ, our, our identity and orientation was, was on a horizontal level. How do I define myself? It was about what was around me and what I was experiencing. Now that we've come to Christ, we have our, our, our identity through him has now superseded anything that we experienced here. And now we've been identified as sons and daughters of God. So it transcends what we knew before because now we've been delivered. Amen? So there ceases to remain any condemnation for we're now living according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. In verse 12, Paul calls believers debtors, not to sin, but to Christ. We are now in his debt because we have been made sons of God, adopted as heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Paul in this passage makes a clear distinction That those who live according to the flesh, this horizontal orientation, will set their minds on things of the flesh. This is what we think about all the time. But if you live according to the spirit, this vertical orientation, then we set our minds on things of the spirit. Amen? So we're talking about a biblical worldview. How How is God calling us to think about these things? Look at your neighbor and say, you need to think for a second. 
You need to stop and think for a second. I'm always, I'm always trying to get people to think, hey, stop and think for a second. Think about it. Think about it. Do you know all your decisions come from thoughts? That should scare some of you. The, Bible's try, the Bible renews our minds when we look into it. Amen? So there's an important aspect of this orientation. The tug of war is between a horizontal origin of identity or a vertical origin of identity. Romans chapter 8 verse 5, we just read it. For those who live according to the flesh, this horizontal thing, set their minds, their thoughts on things of the flesh. So if we're getting our identity from what's around us, that's where we're thinking about. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set their mind on the flesh is death. There is no hope on this level. You're like, I mean, I got Tuesday off. That's a little bit of hope. You got to go back to work on Wednesday. Set their mind on the on the spirit is life and peace. Did you hear that? Life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So every person must decide which orientation will define their identity. A horizontal one, we're going to set our minds on things of the flesh. Or a vertical one, we're going to set our minds on things of the spirit. That's a choice. That we make every day. So God put the law in place to reveal that the horizontal orientation was not adequate. That that it would lead to death. That it would lead not to peace. It would lead not to joy. It, it, It was inadequate to provide salvation for us. Romans chapter 7, just a chapter right before that. Paul says in verse seven, what, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. That's a very peculiar statement. It's like, well, officer, I didn't see, I didn't see the speed limit sign because there wasn't one on the road. So, so think about that. Paul's saying, if the law wasn't there, I wouldn't even know I was sinning. I wouldn't even know that I wasn't pleasing God. I wouldn't even know it. I'd have no way to tell. But because God was faithful to draw us to himself, he puts the law in place and says, hey, this is proof that you can't do it by yourself. For I would have not known what it it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now think about this. Think about growing up. I don't know, somewhere where there's no technology, somewhere where there's no nothing, somewhere where, somewhere where just your, your, your immediate family and the p- just few people around you told you what was right and wrong. And then you realize, you really realize what was right and wrong. And then it opened your eyes up to why, to why you didn't feel good. Do you see what Paul's doing here? Like he, he's going, because there was right and wrong from the very beginning. Are you following me? Right and wrong didn't start with the law. Right and wrong was because God was in existence for eternity. There was no beginning or end. So he's right. And everything that opposes him is wrong. 
So what Paul's saying here is if I didn't have a law, I wouldn't even know I was going against God, but that I was dying inside. Ah. Now do you see how we're going to start to be able to offer freedom to people? Because it is true that there are people walking around unaware that things are wrong. But there, I believe, I believe, even if you didn't tell me that walking into the store and stealing everything in sight was wrong, I think when I walked out, I might feel something. What Paul's saying here, though, we'll get into later, if you keep giving into that, you don't feel anything anymore. So he's saying, listen, apart from the law, I wouldn't even know I was sinning. I wouldn't know I was coveting. But how many know covetousness doesn't ever lead to anything good? So Paul's saying, I could have kept coveting, destroying my life, being unhappy with God has already given me. I could have kept doing it and not even know it was wrong. But the law was not sin. He said, yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin for what... I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So he's saying, sin came in. Evil, the devil came in and went, hey, this is the law. I'm going to teach you how to break it. And everybody in the building knows what that is. Amen? Amen? Just making sure nobody's claiming to be Jesus this morning. Everybody in the building knows what that is. So what happens is the law points us to Christ. God sent Jesus to redeem what the law exposed. Romans 8, verse 3 and 4, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin. So what is he saying there? He's saying Jesus came as a, as a human in the likeness of sinful flesh. For he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He's saying Jesus came, took on all the sin of the world and was crucified for it. He paid that last penalty. All right, so now we're getting into the tug of war or the trap of the horizontal orientation. Our culture is trying to get us to identify our identity to be wrapped up in some things. And we're going to address them this morning. And then, and then next week, we're going to find out how to find our identity in Christ. Are you with me? Our culture wants us to have a horizontal vantage point. Things like base it on appearance or talent, work relationships, desires. Our culture is forcing us to use this very criteria as a definition of our identity. The trouble is every one of them are constantly changing and changing in a way that is unpredictable. Anybody got pictures of you in high school in the eighties? Ladies, there's a reason there's no more hair bands out there because they were from the eighties. Now, I don't know if that's coming back. I haven't seen my wife in the mirror teasing her bangs yet. It's possible. But if you were in the 80s, come on, anybody remember in the 80s? 
and a woman come in with hair teased up to you, you're like, she is beautiful. Wow. And Aquanet was like, buy stock in it, man. That thing's to the moon. But appearances change. Appearances change. While there are certain things I cannot change about my appearance, there are a lot of things that will change over time that I cannot control or stop. I watched a documentary the other day on Arnold Schwarzenegger, who arguably in the, in the 70s, I mean, they were saying, he's got the perfect body. I don't know if that's true or not. Doesn't look like mine. And he went through a phase in his life later on. His whole identity was wrapped up in what his body shape looked like. And, he, and like 40 years later, he goes through this almost like depression because he, he said, I'd look in the mirror and think, this is disgusting. We've talked before here in this church about the difficulty that especially women face with, am I supposed to be super thin or am, am I not supposed to be super thin? And somebody's changing the rules all the time. But I need you to understand right now that God does not identify you and your identity is not made up in how much you weigh, what your hair color is, uh, like how tall you are, your color. That is not it. You're a child of God. Amen. And this is so important because Paul would tell, listen, Paul would tell the church, hey, in Christ, we don't have tribes anymore. There's no Jew, Greek. In Christ, our identity has changed from this is where I'm from to he is where I'm from. Amen? But the world wants us to separate. They want us to separate according to our skin color. They want us to separate according to our weight. They want us to separate according, according to, well, do you dye your hair or do you don't dye your hair? They want us to separate according to all these things that they make up these arbitrary rules Does anybody, did anybody get the rule book? Nobody's got the rule book because it changes. If you go, if you go into a northern part of the country, it changes. When you go to the southern part of the country, it changes. When you go to the Midwest, it changes. When you go to the, out to the, come on. Are you following me? How are you going to keep up? But they want us. And parents, listen to me, listen to me. I'm going to be dead honest with you. Social media is destroying our children's identity because they can't keep up. Because they put on the clothes one day that everybody likes and the next day they don't like them. They put on all the clothes and, and, they, and they weigh too much. They put on all the clothes they don't weigh enough. They put on all the clothes and they're the right, not the right. Show. Come on, can we just be honest? It's time that we teach our kids how to have a vertical identity, a vertical orientation and say, shut the thing off. Shut the thing off. They're gonna, it, you're not going to fit at some point in time. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. God is not on this horizontal going, oh man, you lost your hair at 30. Can't use you now. What? Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Does God want you to be healthy? Yeah. 
but my health is about 210. The doctor wants me like 190. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? I look at the doctor and say, hey, man, I'm getting my worth from him. Not you. Our culture has ingrained this horizontal orientation as a way of defining who we are. If I wear certain clothing or a certain hairstyle or a certain body shape, then this is who I am. If this argument is to be true, my identity would necessarily have to change over and over again because my appearance is changing. I was FaceTiming in my truck the other day. I'm like, who's that 55-year-old looking into the screen? Because I looked a lot older than I am. But the, the stupid phone highlighted all the white in my beard. And I was like, who's that dude? I'm going to start putting filters on. I can't handle it. I'm, I'm going to say this real quick. You know what the freest thing I've ever done is? Cut my hair the same way every time. I don't care. I don't care. The other freest thing I've ever done is let my wife pick out a lot of my clothes. I don't care. I cannot control how, my, how I'm changing. And the problem is I'm changing. I could be at risk of losing my identity. That's a horizontal relationship. That's a horizontal orientation. God didn't intend for you to do that. We're all aging. The next thing they're trying to get us to do are, is talent or work. How many, of you, how many of you say, hey, what do you do? And you would instantly say what you do for a living. This is a common horizontal orientation. I am what I do. Culture forces us to use a sliding scale of value that corresponds with talent or career choices. Certain talents are valued over others as well as certain careers valued over, over others. Can I just, are we honest? If I told you that, that, that I was a movie star in Hollywood, everybody like, oh, he's so talented. Maybe not. But if you said, if you, if you said well, I'm a plumber, listen to me, we did this for decades to children. Are you following me? We told them, don't let your identity be a plumber. Make sure it's this over here. And guess what we need now? And the plumber's walking in going, hey man, I don't have a college education, but you're going to pay $400 for this hour. <laughs> That's what's going to happen now. Do you see what we did? Because we wanted people, we wanted their identity to be wrapped up in something more important. We wanted their identity to be over here. And so we diminished. But see, that happens every time the culture changed. If our identity gets wrapped up, what do you do for a living? I'm a plumber. If you said that in the 90s when I was, when I was going to college, well, what do you do? I'm a plumber. Oh man, you didn't go to school, did you? Because everybody was being told back then, go to school or you end up being a plumber or electrician. Now the plumber and electrician are hiring all the people that went to school. Because <laughs> they can't get it. 
So do you see how when the culture changes, if I wrap up my identity in that horizontal orientation, I miss out on all the things that God wants for me. If you're, if you're gifted to be a plumber, then you should do it with all your heart as in working to the Lord, not for men. Because my orientation is this way. You can't condemn me because I'm doing what God called me to do. Amen. But when we orient horizontally, we get all jacked up. Oh, I'm doing something nobody cares about. It's not true. Here's the other truth. What we do in our ability, what we do in our ability to do it is never static or guaranteed. I'm going to tell you something. I'm 47 years old. And I was laying on my side the other day trying to work on something. And I thought, my arm is so tired. I can't hardly lift it up. I've only been down here 30 seconds. <laughs> if our identities are the sum of our talents or work, they would, they would always be dependent on the availability of work or our strength to complete it. Because it's changing. Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved. Somebody needs to hear this. You're not saved by work. You should work. But that's not your identity. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is not your doing. You weren't saved because you did something. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You can't do enough good for God to save you. You can only accept what he's given you. And so we identify as children of God, not as people who work hard for God. Are you following me? The other thing they want us to identify horizontally is in our relationships. I'm valuable because of who I'm in a relationship with. I know people. I love getting around people that name drop. You say, oh, yeah, we're just, oh, I know, oh, I know blah, 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 blah. I'm like, oh, Really? I'm happy for you. I really don't know anyone famous and I'm happy. It's freeing. Listen to this. If you live long enough, you realize relationships come and go. Now I'll say this. I think marriage should be the only permanent relationship you have on earth and your kids. If they listen, (laughs) marriage should be a permanent relationship. I believe in that. She's stuck with me. The reality is other relationships do come and go. Do you know that? Okay. Other relationships do come and go. Listen to what happened to Jesus. John chapter one, verse nine through 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. John is describing Jesus. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus came to live with us. Everybody following me? So listen to what happens. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. I was talking to somebody the other day about this, and I said, could you imagine Jesus having our cultural mentality? Crawling over in the corner going, oh, Father, they don't like me. Nobody's liked my post. I healed four people the other day and put it on Instagram, and nobody liked it. Could you imagine if the savior of the world had that mentality and yet it plagues the church? 
We have to have people like us so we avoid things. We have to have people like us so we don't tell them the truth. We have to have people like us so, so we're like, oh, I don't want to tell them. And Jesus, John describes Jesus as somebody, God himself came into the world to his own people, the Jews, and it says they received him not. Could you imagine Jesus being depressed because, because the majority of people, I can't go to the cross. People are rejecting me. They want us to wrap our identity up in relationships. At some point in time, people will not, will not receive you. I know it's a harsh reality, and, and some of the older people in here know what I'm talking about. At some point in time, something will happen, and people just will not receive you. It's, it, it's called life. The horizontal orientation of relationships is a God-given benefit to us. Relationships are good. I'm not saying you should go out and start a compound and be a loner. Relationships are good, but I can't base my identity on how many friends I have. COVID proved that. If you wore a mask and your friends didn't like masks, I can't hang out with you anymore. I can't hang out with you. You got a mask on. It's a, it's a mask. It doesn't even, I won't even touch you with it. But we found out how fragile those can be and how opposing it could be. The horizontal orientation of relationship is a God-given benefit to us, but there's wisdom in the counsel of many. There's things like that. We know scripture says a cord of three strands is not easily broken. We need friends. We need support. We need all those things. But it doesn't consume my identity. Here's the problem. Every relationship we are in with other people, both sides are sinners saved by grace. Hopefully. So at some point in time, there may be a disagreement if our identity is wrapped all up in that. Guess what? Not going to be any joy in your life. The fourth thing, Alyssa, there's our desires. There's a, there is a huge push now. It's not new. I'm going to read you a scripture. It's not new. There's a large push in the United States that we identify with the desires we have in us. James chapter one, verse 12 through 15, blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial. That word trial or temptation. So it makes the rest of this make sense. Listen, blessed is a man who remains steadfast under a temptation for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. So remember God put the law in place to reveal sin in our lives. Sin comes in and causes us to disobey the law. Are we, are we clear on that? So, so James is saying, as a pastor, he's saying, don't ever say that God's tempting you. All God did was tell you what was right and wrong. That's like going back to your parents and saying, you told me not to do that, and it caused me to do it. Maybe you did try that. If you tried that, you should have got a spanking. No, I didn't cause you to sin. I told you what was right, and I told you what was wrong. And you chose, because there was sin in your life, to do the opposite. So James is following this up. I'm not being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt with evil. And he himself tempts no one. Follow me here. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own what? 
Oh, man, do we ever live in a culture where everybody wants you to identify with the desires you have. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The horizontal orientation of desire has taken over our culture. I'm going to be sensitive here. People change identities based on the strongest desires they have. The problem is, I need you to understand this. Desires are not automatically pure simply because we experience them. Did you hear me? Just because I have the desire to do it doesn't mean it's pure. Just because I have the repeated desire to do it doesn't mean it's pure. So the horizontal orientation restricts one from defining a desire as sinful So we're left with people identifying with an intense desire without the ability to judge what associating with that desire produces. So so what happens is, I'm not denying desire. Everybody in the building has sinful desires. Some of you are like, "Uh uh-uh, no, no, not me. Oh, don't lump me in with them. We all have sinful desires. Remember, Paul said, without the law, I wouldn't even know it. Except from the penalty of death. But the grace of God gave us the law to to show us the sin in our lives. So then what happens? So then I don't compare my desire with the other people having desires. I compare my desire to the law. Is it right? Is it a godly desire or is it not a godly desire? So now we have a tug of war between horizontal and vertical. Where am I going to compare this desire? And here's what, here's, what I, here's what I hear all the time. Well, it ain't as bad as what they're doing. I don't know that that's the rule. And if it is, who's the worst? And let me know who I'm supposed to be comparing to. Because as far as I know, when I get to heaven, God's going to go, hey, you're on your own, bro. You don't get to compare yourself with anybody else. I'm going to compare you with my expectations and see if you accepted Christ to make up for it. But here's what we do. I'm not as bad as they are. I'm not as bad as they are. They're in prison for life. That's easy. I can always find somebody that I'm not as bad as. Are you following me? So we have to be able to compare the desires we have with the truth. I'm not denying that the desire is there. But I'm saying there has to be a comparison of that. There has to be a standard by which, and that's not mean. To assume that a desire is pure simply on the basis that is the most intense and the most prevalent is a deception from Satan. If we start saying this is a pure desire just because I'm experiencing it and it's intense and it's pure, that's a deception. Man is unable from his sinful position to judge accurately apart from the law what is holy or pure. As desire changes, our values change, and then our identity changes. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. When's the last time we were honest like that? 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He's just being transparent. He said, man, there's a lot of evil desires in me. And I'm trying to do what is right. All right, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. Listen, I'm going to read you Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 22, because this is, this is what our culture is dealing with right now. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all un- and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we have these desires and we want to embrace the desires so we suppress what is true. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them but because, because God has shown it to them. He said he's made it everybody aware. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. He's talking about all of us are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. What is this? In chapter 8, he says, we became fixed on the flesh, our thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. He's talking to the Romans. He's saying, listen, this is what happened. People started setting up, they started worshiping animals. They started worshiping other things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So listen what happens. There's a progression here. When we ignore God, when we ignore what he has said is pure, when we just reject it and reject it and reject it, then our minds get fixed on the flesh. Our mind gets fixed or in the horizontal. And, and we start, and that's what gets exacerbated in us. Are you following me? They exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, desires, for their women exchange natural relations for those who are contrary to nature and the men likewise, and you keep reading it and for one another. Now listen to this. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, Heartless and ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now listen, Paul describes a lot right there. And he's telling the Romans, you know what this looks like. If we have a horizontal orientation and we're just we're just giving into des- our identity is based on the desires we have. This is the path that ends up taking. And we can look out through our culture and see it. He mentions sexual sin all over the place. Not just the one he labels there. But he mentions it everywhere. And lists all these other things. And I'm begging the church. We're not throwing stones. We're saying this is where we're living. You turn the news on every day. It's a commentary by D. Stuart Briscoe. It says the logic of Paul's argument should not be missed. Those who reject what they know of God in so doing divorce themselves from truth and reality. 
This means, among other things, that a person out of touch with reality of God is out of touch with reality, period. Including the truth about humanity. To be out of touch with the meaning of humanity means a crisis of identity, which is demonstrated in many ways. Not the least confusion about sexuality. When sexuality is misunderstood, the sheer power of unrestrained sexual drive and uneducated sexual insight will produce all manners of aberrant sexual behavior. In short, confusion about God, a confusion about God breeds confusion about man, which breeds confusion about sexuality, which produces sexual confusion and chaos. Far from being, as was fondly imagined by many, an enlightened age of sexual freedom. Paul showed his contemporaries that they lived in a dark day of divine wrath. He's talking to Rome thousands of years ago. What are we getting for a horizontal orientation? Here's what we get. We're opening up a biblical counseling center. I believe in counseling, but this is the truth of the matter. When our desires impact us in a way, when, when sinful desires impact us in a way, and then we try to get help for the, for, for the effects of it without addressing the sin, the help doesn't work. Come on. If my kid came to me and said, this is what I'm feeling about this. And I said, oh, you shouldn't feel that way and they were committing sin, I would be negligent not to tell them that the sin caused them to feel that way. Can I tell you something, church? It's not gracious to avoid it. It's selfish. It's not gracious to avoid sin. It's selfish. If one of my children came to me and said, Dad, I'm in so much trouble. This is what's going on, and I don't know. If I say, oh, it'll be okay, honey. Your mother and I will get you out of this thing. We'll do it for you. It'll be okay. We'll teach you some techniques. I would be, it, because I didn't want to deal with the real issue in them. Are you following me? If I didn't want to look at them and say, hey, listen, this is the reason you're feeling this way because God has labeled the things you're doing as sin. I'm not saying do it over dinner every night. Come on, can we just be realistic for a second? but our culture is avoiding it and we're counseling people forever. And nobody's getting any better because we're leaving them horizontal. We're not saying, hey, listen, there's, it's, it's, it's not just about pointing out your sin. It's about, I know the one that can give you freedom. I know the one that you can experience true freedom in. We've got the keys to this. The band's coming up. Paul's begging the Roman church. Paul's begging the Roman church. Hey guys, orient yourself vertically. When we do it down here, it leads death and destruction. When you do it about your appearance, when you do it about your talent and work, when you do it, when, when you do it about your friends, when you do it about desires, it leaves a path of destruction and hopelessness. It's not gonna work. It's not gonna work. And the culture is trying to pull us down into that realm week after week after week. And God's saying, please come up. I want to give you freedom. Come up. I want to give you peace. Come up. I want to give you, I want to release you. But at some point in time, the church has to be bold enough to go, okay, there are things that I'm doing that are sinful. 
difficult as that is, Lord, I need you to forgive me and I need you to help me. It needs to start with us. It needs to start with us. Because nobody is going to believe that we're offering freedom when we're locked up. Nobody's going to believe it. So I know this is a difficult morning. But the church has the keys. God is not a God condemning people. God is a God that loves people to the point that he would die for us. And he's begging us, get freedom, get forgiveness, get forgiveness, get forgiveness. Don't keep embracing this. Don't keep embracing this. So we're not throwing stones. We're offering freedom. We're offering freedom today. Amen. Come and stand to your feet. Maybe you need that freedom this morning. Maybe you have a relationship where you've been inept at offering freedom. Maybe you've been throwing stones at people. Maybe you've just been mean and inconsiderate. Maybe. And it's time for us to learn how Jesus approached people caught in sin. I'm not talking about the religious people. I'm talking about people caught in sin. How Jesus approached them, woman at the well. How, how he approached the woman caught in How he approached men who were, who were trapped in sin. He did it graciously and offered them freedom. He came to set the captive free. So, Father, we ask you to help us do that. Lord, set us free. Is there anybody in here, Lord, that needs freedom this morning? I pray that their identity would change from this horizontal focus to a vertical focus. I pray that you do that right now. Give them salvation. Give them freedom as they follow you. And then teach us, God, today. Teach us today, Lord, how to offer that freedom to the people around us. Empower us to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Can you give him honor and praise this morning, church? Do you thank him? Look, make this a week of freedom. Amen? Hey, listen, encourage somebody your way out. Enjoy your 4th of July celebration. We'll see you back here next week.